Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about space. I was really glad we decided to record this because I feel like, especially with the pandemic, the headlines are all about space. People are talking all about what space they have or don't have or wish they had. And I think a lot of people are feeling trapped in their homes, in their lives, in their marriages, in their careers or jobs. And I think it's a moment where you know, space has become a major topic of conversation in terms of how people are living their lives and organizing their labor. Can you talk a little bit about your perceptions, Laura, about the pandemic and space and feeling trapped? So, I mean, I think there have been two separate kinds of pandemics, depending on whether you can work from home or not. And I think space has changed for people experiencing both realities of the pandemic. So like for people at home, a lot of Folks have been forced to reimagine their space to make use of like what was intentionally a kitchen as an office or what once was a living room is now the place where your kids do their at-home learning or where you're managing your laundry in addition to your Zoom calls. So I do think having to crunch a lot of different spaces that used to exist outside the home into the home has kind of created, you know, some agoraphobia or a sense of insularity that makes people feel trapped. Like they can't get out of their home or their office. They're always there. And it's kind of created this erasure of certain boundaries that helped when you were able to get out of your house and go to other spaces. Um, And for people who aren't able to work from home, I think it's created, you know, discomfort in spaces that once may have felt safe, you know, restaurant workers, for example, I feel like restaurants have always existed as a space that is two separate things, depending on (laughs) what situation you're in. So um, having worked in restaurants, working there is a very different understanding of the space than when you're a customer there for an hour or two. So And having health concerns and being around people in spaces in your workplace and having an additional element of lack of bodily autonomy, especially when you have the issue issue of mask wearing and like certain autonomies being prioritized. I feel like it's invasive more than I always thought people coming into the restaurants I worked at were always a little invasive (laughs) anyway, but (laughs) you know, when there's like the additional risk um, involved you can't leave, you know, that's, I always felt trapped in certain situations. Like if folks are being abusive in a public space as they are now more than ever, there's not an option to leave. So I think there's that sensation of being trapped on both ends in very different ways. Yeah. Obviously as a parent, I'm thinking, I think constantly about pandemic parenting in the home. I read a Facebook thread by a colleague, Rebecca Bearfox, who was talking about how one of the reasons why a lot of middle-class white women wanted their kids to go back to school in person this year 
was because there is such an unequal distribution of labor in their heterosexual white households and they don't have the support. And the longer the kids stayed home, the more clear it was that they didn't have an idyllic heterosexual marriage household family situation. And that it wasn't as egalitarian as that they, they might have thought or still think. And so I thought that was really on point, especially with the middle-class white women who work outside the home, right? Wanting to career climb, but also not having like childcare support or FMLA or sick days or the teachers, the white teachers who basically run public education, not having enough COVID days to quarantine or take care of themselves or health insurance or what have you. So I've been thinking a lot about pandemic parenting as a fundamental challenge of heterosexual, especially white heterosexual norms in terms of community labor. Obviously, it's different in communities of color in some ways and some circumstances it's similar, but on the whole, it's not. So I've been thinking about collaborative child rearing and even the minimal spaces where there's social collaboration around childbearing sort of falling apart because of the pandemic. And I've also been thinking a bunch because we live in the South, we live in Arkansas, we live in Fayetteville about cults in the intersection between the lack of space and feeling trapped and the over-reliance on the heterosexual family to be the unit of analysis for collapse, because obviously we're surrounded by all of these, we're surrounded by cults in the South, but also by like, you know, natalist cults like the Duggars. And I'm just thinking a lot about the over-dominance of white heterosexuality as a trap, right? As itself a trap, as the trap, the trap of bodily autonomy and the essential place where boundaries collapse, you know, regardless of the pandemic or not. And so I like you thinking about, you know, working from home or parenting from home in the pandemic as a collapse of boundaries, which white people are already terrible at anyway, right? And so perhaps a silver lining is that they're more aware of boundaries or the way that they don't maintain them. I also wonder about rates of divorce and what those are going to look like or what they've been looking like. I haven't looked at any of the demography about that, but I just see people's relationships shifting a lot, like their romantic relationships or whatever as labor, but also as a fundamental expression of self and need. And I think about those shifts being in part about space and labor, you know. Thinking about pandemic parenting and childcare in general is a really important analysis for like our quality of life. You know, child rearing right now as it stands is near impossible. And I think the pandemic made that especially clear for a couple of reasons, you know, Part of the great resignation and one that I think is under discussed is that a lot of women left the workforce because they lost their ability to access affordable childcare. So um, in some ways, it's more expensive to go to work than to pay for daycare and continue working at a meager wage. I think we're more aware of how just how unaffordable childcare is. And so there either has to be some kind of way to subsidize the cost of childcare, or we have to reimagine the way that we care for children. And so a lot of it has been like very space-based. The child has to be away from you. They can't be at the office. They need to be at school. And there's so much conversation around how much has been lost because kids missed so much school last year, like that gap. We have 
structured a society where kids don't really interact outside of those really structured settings because we're doing it all alone in those individual family units. So we rely so heavily on those institutions that are really out of reach for a lot of people anyway. I, I, I think it's a really good starting place to reimagine like if this pandemic was so hard on kids because they didn't have access to an institution, then like how do we create contingencies how do we, when there's like the loss in the summer, you know, there's a disparity between kids that have access to programs in the summer or camps, resources, um, that shouldn't be a gap. I, we're failing on more levels than just institutional then. Yeah. And I feel like public libraries are trying to fill that gap. And so like all of the book banning anti-CRT, anti-Black stuff that's happening right now is fundamentally about destroying the role of libraries and helping to distribute some of the labor of that childcare gap. I also think it's worth noting that the people who have been resigning have been women, but they've been disproportionately Black women. So that strikes me as a fundamentally white supremacist edge of the space, you know, labor moment. I've also been thinking a bunch about the ways in which wealthy people circumvent feeling trapped by just buying more space. Like how many new landlords has the pandemic produced? Like, you know, how many middle-class white people or upper middle-class white people or upper-class white people bought more property for themselves or to rent out? I'm thinking about the labor market here in Fayetteville or the fights about Airbnb, right, where people are buying up affordable housing and then jacking up the prices for short-term rentals and really keeping people out of homeownership as a stepping stone to wealth and what that means in terms of space and being trapped, right? How many people felt trapped in their homes and then wanted to buy a bigger house so they could feel trapped in a bigger space? You know, I feel like space is the issue And nobody's talking about it in ways that marry all of these different aspects together. It's really interesting to think about real estate because of just how much limited public space there is. And so, you know, what public space there is, is often confined to certain areas like walkable downtowns, certain parks, and like how those are some of the most valuable places to live. And they're the least accessible to the people who need them the most. So like in Fayetteville, for example, living around the library or around Wilson Park are two of the most expensive places to live in town. And those are two of the places that would be the most valuable to folks who don't have much private space available to them. And I think that's a pattern that I see almost everywhere. And for a city like Fayetteville that claims to prioritize arts, um, you know, I went on vacation to Santa Fe, New Mexico this winter. And one thing that really surprised me about Santa Fe was how much public investment there was in art. And it was like such a stark comparison to Fayetteville. And maybe I noticed more because I, you know, have a lot of friends who are artists and who also have to do side hustles because there's no way to make a living really as an artist in Fayetteville. Um, But there is in Santa Fe because I saw how much visible public funding there was for the arts, like studio space that was publicly subsidized. And 
um, affordable enclaves of apartments in walkable mm -hmm. areas. I mean, and it, it suffers from similar problems. Like there's a ton of bed and breakfasts in downtown Santa Fe, right? For, you know, a certain kind of client. But um, I saw more of an effort that there for like um, to sustain artists and indigenous people given like the history of the area, which is something that I think more cities should invest in. Like housing spaces is such a crucial part of thriving communities, creative communities. So, you know, if we let developers and like real estate companies control most of the private space in downtowns and people who already have money, um, they're going to price out things that can actually contribute and make it affordable for folks to live. I also think that that space issue raises one about safety, right? Like Arkansas has one of the weakest landlord tenant laws, the weakest in the entire country. And so there's no like rid of habitability in Arkansas and in most of the South. And so thinking about that right now in the pandemic, I'm thinking about how much good revamping all of the air filtration systems in the public schools could have done into decreasing this massive wave that's running through the children. Like if we had spent the money on retrofitting and upgrading all of the schools with that CARES money, that would be permanent like public health good in the schools where they would continue to be open and continue to be more safe. And right, even with masks, the mask would have been so much more efficacious because the air would have been purified and we didn't fucking do that. We didn't fucking do that. And so we're in the middle of like, you know, school board appreciation week. And all I want to do is burn it to the fucking ground because, you know, there is no reason to expose all these kids to a disease we don't know very much about when the public good should have been in investing in clean air. What the fuck? And I feel that way about higher ed and I feel that way about businesses. And if you got some PPP money, what the fuck are you doing about air filtration? Anything? Because there is not, it's not, there's not going to be another period where we don't need clean air. Like the air is only going to get worse and viruses are still going to circulate. Why would you not invest in the long-term welfare of the people who use those buildings? But it continues to be a failure of imagination about space to understand that if, if you want the schools to stay open and you want the, you know, the public good to be served, then you have to do something to make those places safe. And I don't just mean from the air. I also mean from the white supremacy and the class warfare and the you know colonialism. I mean those things too, right? But I mean, in terms of like the actual physical space, why did we not build a bunch of places for the kids to eat lunch outside in the three seasons that they can. Why are there not a bunch of pavilions outside of all the grade schools? I cannot for the life of me fucking understand the lack of imagination about where people can spend time safely outside in, in, a, in year three of this global pandemic. It's, it's stupid. Yeah. I mean, I think um, a lot of the focus in the pandemic ha was on digital spaces like the lack of training in schools meant that everyone was like, okay, we have to learn Google workspace now and figure out how to set up Zoom. And like so many resources went to the focus on the digital space that I really do think we ignored what would actually make our physical spaces more livable. 
people are averse to humaning with others because they lack the skills. And so they're like, well, if I can just put my avatar on the interwebs, right, then everything will be fine. Look, look at how everybody has equitable access. They don't, we don't have real broadband in America. They, we, they didn't give out hotspots. I mean, it's just crazy. It is, it is a complete and total self-aggrandizing fantasy of success that they did the best that they could. It's interesting how much we participate also in that collective delusion. I mean, I, I do feel like I have also receded more into digital space and I'm sure I'm not alone in doing that during the pandemic and also seeing companies lean in to um, like VR, like the metaverse as creating like alternative spaces. If we create alternate spaces in the digital world, the interests are different than like physical spaces because there are differences in ownership. So at least like you have some degree of autonomy in your own physical space, but uh, I just can't imagine like the metaverse is going to be a space where you're not constantly sold something. There are so many interests that are going to define that space that aren't for the public good. Yeah, but also it's just moving people into more zones of white supremacy and consumption, right? It's like, don't go to the mall where there are people who don't look like you, right? Don't go to public schools where there are people who don't look like you. It is, it is, the metaverse seems to me to be the the ultimate space for um, the consolidation of fantastical white identity, right? You don't have to interact with anybody who doesn't have the same opinions you do. And it seems so avoidant to me. And it's weird because, you know, I have a middle grade kid who's on Roblox, right? And that is all changing avatars all the time, right? And so they're all, the kids are all experimenting with different kinds of avatars. And in some ways, I think for the adults who now want to do that, you know, that this like busted version of Second Life, right, with Facebook is really just going to be about optimizing the propaganda model of whiteness so that people just continue to get glued into their computers and not interact with the other humans or think about anybody else's needs. So it's like totally gratification, an economy of white gratification operating in the metaverse that is like super fucking toxic. So I like to see the Gen Xers laugh about it because I think we're all like, who has time for this? We're all drowning in childcare. But I worry about the youngs who are like, obviously I can't own a house now because there's no space. So I should just have a fantasy life online and be a brain in a jar. I think that's going to go very poorly. Yeah. What's weird about it and what's weird about second life, um, I need to be caught up by a Gen Zer on Roblox, but what's it? <laughs> oh, I can lend you one and I'm sorry in advance. <laughs> what's weird to me about it is like the lack of imagination. Like it is just reproducing uh, values and structures that we have here, like on in the normal life. And it's just like, okay, so like I maybe wasn't successful in like the narrow constructs of the real world. So I'll just like do the same thing that I tried to do like in second life. It's just reproducing the same thing. And it's like, that's completely missing the potential of a digital space where you can like have different modes of expression that may not currently be available to you, like in a real public setting, but like in a digital space are totally possible. So like the funniest thing to me about, you know, the announcement of the metaverse is like Mark Zuckerberg's avatar just looking exactly like him, (laughs) you know, it's like, 
I'm just going to create an avatar that looks like the real me. Like, is that what we are wanting to do with this? Like, I cannot I understand it. And I cannot even hear the like marginalized idea. Like I can be queer on the internet. I understand fundamentally, structurally, rural America is not good for marginalized people. And also you can still be queer in a white supremacist on the internet. So if there's no... There's like a disconnect about the kind of ideal subjectivity that's being produced by the second life metaverse thing that is non-negligible. It's like the thing that they are producing it is an easily saleable, easily transferable, right? Whiteness, period. Well, it's something that'll be marketable that they can sell billboard space. Microsoft isn't going to buy ad space and like... <laughs> um, a hyper progressive online orgy, right? Like, <laughs> you know, maybe <laughs> have to like stick to certain <laughs> brand guidelines or everything has to adhere, like has to be marketable still, um, which is really disappointing. And I mean, it has infiltrated so much of our space everywhere. The amount of space where we're like being sold stuff. Um, it's impossible to escape, especially in urban settings. I mean, and it's not that I don't want to, that I want to minimize that people need a space to get away from like the death and dying of the COVID and like the crushing ennui of late capital. Okay. So this is not a rant about fantasy scapes bad. It's just like the fantasy scape is so fucking narrow and the tech bros are deciding what your fantasy is. And so like get a grip, right? (laughs) Because the amount of agency that you're actually producing with your avatar that looks exactly like you is uh, not as much as you think it is. So it's not, this isn't even like escapism bad, although I feel like I could produce a pretty compelling rant on that topic too. It's really about the fact that people feel like they need that space to reproduce more whiteness. It's like the fucking matrix. Like it's it's Mr. Smith. Like how do I make more Mr. Smiths? And that's what, you know, the metaverse is fundamentally about. So I feel like the way that people are perceiving their trappedness is like being stuck in a fishnet, the harder that you, you struggle, the tighter that it gets around you, right? And so people are looking for other fishnets to jump into. Yeah, what's baffling to me is that, you know, a lot of these people who need more space are buying more space or trying to get out of cities are also people who have like no tolerance for homelessness. The concept of space and having more of it for yourself is in conflict with other situations where like you're confronted with people who don't have access to space at all um, and that you don't understand the kinds of constraints that are placed on folks who like don't have access to a space of their own. Um, I I just hear like platitudes about homelessness like you know everyone's hiring right now why don't they just get a job it's like their job is to like find a place to sleep tonight (laughs) like so I think a lot of people don't understand how taxing it is to not have space, even as they are taxed by being trapped in a space that isn't sufficiently large for them. So it's just like a failure to apply a circumstance that you feel to people who have it worse. But also you, I cannot help but think about this, this major public discourse about space happening at a moment of DEI expansion and critical race theory and BLM, because I feel like the much larger structural thing is about being trapped in white supremacy. So like, what does it mean to have, you know, have 
black futures that are trapped in the most limited fucking imagination about progress and white govern governance, like that kind of being trapped is a serious kind of trapped. And that's and that's above like trapped in white housing and trapped in, you know, redlining and trapped in shitty white workplaces and trapped in no voting rights and voter repression. I mean, at this time when the economy is expanding despite a pandemic, right, especially at the top and for some and especially for white people and people with college educations, there's also the taking away that is so punitive, right? And the space is so narrow that I understand why there's so much despair because the future is in entirely white, almost exclusively boomer male hands, right? And so what does it mean to even imagine futures outside of the fact that those folks control all of the purse strings and levers of government? That's a really great point. And, you know, it's interesting to think about spaces in terms of who belongs or feels comfortable in a space. Feminists talk about this all the time of like white men taking up too much space, but you know, it's hard not to notice. And it's like the most obvious sign that most spaces have been constructed in a way that is gendered and also white. You know, spaces have been designed not to be comfortable for everyone. I think about like from something like office chairs, bathrooms. (laughs) I mean, we, the University of Arkansas is on the trail of tears. So reservations are spaces where people are trapped. (laughs) I mean, the entire South is one long space of trapped black brownness, right? You know, people of color belong here and not here, here and not here, here and not here, here and not here. And I feel like the economic shifts that are happening as a result of the pandemic are a confrontation with segregation in all of its forms, whether they're overtly colonial and territorial expansion or whether they're fundamentally anti-Black, right? So I think that space and feeling trapped operate in a bunch of different vectors that in some ways are becoming more clear to some because of the way that the pandemic has distributed, you know, suffering to white communities, but it's still not a full reckoning. In one way, I feel like I'm in a weird position to defend some things that Joe Biden does, right? Because the the child tax credit was a democratized way of trying to manage the shitty federal policies about like child care and FMLA. And it was a democratized federal thing that was trying to operate against the way that states, you know, trap people into spaces. And I think that that is obviously limited, a limited good, but in the right direction and should probably be held up as I think putting, you know, pre-K into the Build Back Better bills about infrastructure and elderly care are a way of managing space and trapped and these these larger scale issues that can't get through white supremacist Congress. You know, that isn't to say that Biden is a hero. I'm not saying that. Clearly, I'm not saying that. But it is to say that there are ways to imagine inclusive federal policy that work against the trappedness that has been produced by people, including Biden himself. Right. It's not like he's, you know, not culpable for producing some of that trappedness. But I do think that the pandemic is exposing some of the fault lines around which space is patrolled, controlled, resold. Right. That is useful if we're going to build different kinds of futures that aren't so white supremacist. For me, um, 
Biden is kind of a harbinger of the lack of intellectual space that is available um, on the left. He was like touted as a safe choice. And, you know, his whole candidacy was built on the fact that the left doesn't have a lot of intellectual space. We need a moderate in order to win the White House or any seat in Congress, any seat in the Senate. And like you see that language um, reciprocated within the Democratic Party. Uh, Members of Congress on the left are being told to like zip it about police reform. You know, there's like a narrow set of acceptable public messaging that we can operate within in order to remain, you know, within the voters range of acceptable (laughs) beliefs. But it is like extremely limiting. And I feel like that a lot of language is trapped in this like really um, honestly canned and uncreative political lane. What where like I feel like the discourse on the right is totally uninhibited. (laughs) Yeah, it's just the it run wild. Nihilism good all the time. Break it, burn it, eat it, kill it. That's all. Yeah. So I think about the fact that there are certain intellectual spaces that are inaccessible or uncouth publicly and how limiting that is. Yeah. I mean, I, I also feel like there's some of the stuff in his agenda that's already passed or that's pending that is also a triumph of the left, right? The idea that the left will be the coalition is obviously a counterfactual. So that's not to say that it shouldn't be struggled for and that both critiques and new imaginations have to be produced. But I do think that it is worth reading the Biden agenda as in inclusive of some progressive ideas and voices, particularly as a reading practice against the GOP, which is only producing paranoid, reactionary readings of politics. It's it, right? They're coming for us. We have to dominate is the only reading style possible with the GOP. So I think that there is there has to be a way to produce inclusive readings of the Biden administration that see progressive gains as being included in the coalitional politics while also producing accountability for Biden and the administration. Otherwise, I don't see how how leftists don't also feel trapped in the coalitional politics of the two-party system, right? You have to be able to claim the wins in the agenda that are adjacent to the ideological tenets that your side is producing on the left. And I don't think that the left is very good at that. I think they're good at slinging mud and that's certainly a skill that has to be had, but I would totally be claiming some of those victories as part of the ideological, you know, sideism of the left. And they're not doing that as well, I think, but I think it would, it would help to bring more people into politics if they could see the left winning, which I actually do think that they are. I don't think I'm being politically naive in saying that, you know, many of the things that made it into the final version of Build Back Better were actually wildly progressivist ideas. I think also like the low key student loan pausing is actually, even though it happened to the Trump administration, the continuation of it is super progressive. And that's given people almost three years to wealth build. And also a bunch of that public loan forgiveness stuff is going to take, I mean, millions, billions of dollars, right, you know, um, out of people's debt pool. Now, that's obviously a a micro-targeted subset of people, but it is progressive. 
And so if you can do debt reduction for student loans, you can do it for everything else. You can do it for medical debt. You can do it for, you know, prison debt. You can do it for anything. So I just, I feel like there needs to, expansive reading practices are part of ameliorating the feeling of trappedness, right? Expansive reading practices build different kinds of material futures in politics that can transform space. And I think material, the reading practices build a different kind of materiality. You have access to more resources if you can cast them, you know, politically in different ways. And we're just not doing that because as you said, you know, the failure of imagination is so great, even though I think that the resources exist. So there has to be a way of overcoming the trappedness and bringing people into a different kind of collective political space. I did want to talk more about personal space too, beyond political space. And we covered some of this at the top of the episode where we were thinking, you know, about how the pandemic has impacted people's perception of their personal space and like Mm -hmm. your space as well. I also want to think about um, how important being alone is. I think in order to like, contribute you know as a whole person you it requires time for you to have space and I'm thinking about like who gets access to alone time and and in pandemic parenting it's uh, often not moms but you know how important alone time is to look like creative thought and a lot of people who we consider you know really innovative thinkers have just had the benefit of having a lot of alone time and having mm-hmm. to do labor for them so that they have more time to themselves. <laughs> and um, I, I do think that's like an underlooked way to think about the value of, of space. I think it ties into our tech conversation too. I think people are, are flocking to internet spaces because they don't have to confront the self there, right? Or others. It's not just that they're avoiding the you know, democratic pluralism of a country, you know, with the immigrant history and colonial history of the United States, it's that they also are avoiding themselves. And I think that the facilitation of that kind of avoidance is fundamentally anti-democratic. And so I think spaces, as people are wondering, what, what should I be doing in this political moment? It should be, how can you shore up spaces where people can interact with one another safely and productively. And, and that might include some conflict, right? Interpersonal conflict, certainly not violence, but I think that is the task is how do we suggest that a major goal, ethical goal of a democracy is to share space and that shared space is a public good. And that feeling trapped is fundamentally anti-democratic and mobility is a democratic value, right? I'm, I'm thinking a lot about how segregation of transportation inhibited the social mobility of people of color, Black people in particular. And I'm thinking about the state police as a bastion of white supremacy and the way that they crack down on Black motorists and motorists of color. And I'm, you know, mobility is essential, <laughs> right, is an essential question of space, whether it's social mobility or mobility of housing or moving freely between place to place. And I think 
especially with the pandemic and pandemic restrictions and, you know, restrictions on whole countries being able to fly because of misunderstandings of the virus. All of that is also implicated in these questions of space that are both interpersonal and political. So I think you're right. I think figuring out ways to balance alone time and collaborative interpersonal connection, whether online or in person is an essential task moving forward. I mean, an important part of alone time is like collective labor, you know, um, creating more equitable living arrangements. It's creating more shared resources, better public spaces. It's uh, rethinking, you know, who does work when and for who. Collective living, I think, is hard now in um, our current economy because I think about, you know, how pressed Uh, most of us are like we're struggling to even maintain our own like households with like two people in them like let alone like what if (laughs) I was helping support a community like in you know Thursday is my day to cook a dinner or like do the dishes and I like don't have the bandwidth I think it requires an unbundling of multiple things not just like the household family unit but also Mm -hmm. how focused we are on employment (laughs) and like work in that really um, narrow sense. Because right now we're working a full-time job. Like, I don't think I would be able to contribute enough to a communal living situation. Like I wouldn't be a good partner. I wouldn't be good at childcare. Wouldn't be able to devote enough resources to like providing a valuable skill set. And I think that's true of a lot of people who, you know, I love and would live with, you know, it's like, we can't <laughs> because we're working mm-hmm. so much. You know, I've experienced across the fields that I've been in, everyone is like a little too crushed to care um, because, you know, they barely have enough to take care of themselves, let alone contribute to a communal type of situation. So it's like a rethinking um how domestic labor works and also like how much labor we're putting into, like, you don't need as much money. You don't need to work 40 hours a week. If you have people helping, (laughs) you only need to buy one washing machine. It's like, but if you do, if you have to buy your own washing machine, pay for the repairs, have one car or one car per person, pay for the repairs, not, you're not carpooling, you're ordering all of your own food, all of your own groceries. Some of it gets thrown away because you can't get to it all over order. Do all of your own meal planning, all of that. All of that perpetuates the thing where you have to work 40 hours a week because you don't have any help. It's like a what comes first, chicken or the egg thing. Like how do we get to that place where it's acceptable to make less money because we are pooling our resources then? What does that mean? Like you have to change the definition of what the economy is. Like GDP can't be the goal then, because if everyone's making less money, less washing machines are being sold, GDP will decline. But (laughs) if we're pooling resources and we're doing it in a way where, you know, we have more support, that to me creates better outcomes. I think the overall quality of life starts Mm -hmm. to get better. Yeah, I think so too. And I think that, you know, there are reasons why the family, capital the capital family becomes the building block of nation, right? 
um, for property rights in particular, and people are very attached to it (laughs) because of that and other reasons. But I do think that the pandemic has disrupted so much that it has created a reckoning with some of these issues around space and safety and the good life and wages and labor and that the path forward has to be in unbundling the way that we feel about our identities as workers and, you know, the kinds of quality time that we want to spend with the people that we love. There's just a sense that you're job is never going to take care of you, right? Your job won't love you back. And that's, that's some serious shit. And I don't think that Americans who've been propagandized to think that their job is their identity are prepared to let go of their own fantasies about the labor that they've produced and what it really means, even if it were in favor of a more equitable distribution of labor for themselves, where their quality of life would improve. And that's, I think, the hardest pill to swallow as an adult person is that people are unwilling or unable to do it. The other side of that is people are doing it, right? They're resigning from their jobs and they are opting out and they are challenging assumptions about what they should or should not be doing. And they're trying to, you know, create new space and making new space for others and new ideas and new futures. So all is not lost, but I think it's a recalcitrance that's fantasy scape right now things will go back to the way they were when we go back to normal after the pandemic and that's understandable as a chronological time thing but it's also a longing for the predictability and order that white capitalist patriarchy you know produces for units of people and i think the attachment to that the optimism of that is just really cruel it's a cruel attachment right to a really nefarious thing I mean, that's how we've defined ourselves. And that's like been a source of comfort, buying stuff and putting it in our houses. And I mean, it's been um, a narrative that's been created and sold to us for a reason. And it's one that I, I think we're realizing increasingly doesn't actually benefit us. So I hate the like back to normal language. I don't think it's helpful. And I think, you know, I hear it most from the people who who are advantaged by things going back to normal. So, you know, by bosses and CEOs and like things going back to normal, it would be a really bad thing for most people. Yeah. I mean, this is an opportunity. The great resignation is the most hopeful thing to me because at a minimum, it forces employers to provide better working conditions. And then like from there, I think helps people understand that they don't have to identify (laughs) themselves based on how much labor that they've produced for someone else. Yeah. I hope that we can call it the great realignment (laughs) at some point. And that's the ultimate outcome. I would prefer the futurist imaginings to the nostalgia and longing for the pre-pandemic times, which really, and you know, you're correct, sucked for most people. I think it's an emergent future and there's much to be decided. But I do think that even with the fascist white supremacist present, there are people struggling in new directions. 
and doing it with hope, you know, and being happy with the decision to rebel from the conformism of, you know, late capital. And that I think, I think you're right to be hopeful about it. I am too. 